You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Happy Wednesday and welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock. It is hump day. Uh, we're two days away from the weekend. Uh, we're going to keep chugging along and getting through this week. Uh, man, you hear me say it every day, but today I really, really mean it. Great show on tap. Great show on tap. It's Wednesday, so that Tennessee Harmony, of course, Pastor Anthony is out of town, won't be with us. Uh, we're going to hear from Pastor Bobby, and we're going to hear from TJ Moe, the Show Me Kid. Uh, TJ is kind of the driving force on our Tennessee Harmony discussion later in the show. Uh, TJ and I exchanged uh, Sunday services, Sunday sermons with each other. Uh, over the weekend, I sent him a sermon I watched from uh, Mike Todd, Yes, I'm still down with Mike Todd. He made the mistake with the spit thing, but the guy's a heck of a minister. And he, he I sent TJ Mike Todd's sermon. TJ sent me his sermon uh, from St. Louis, the church he attends, or that he and his wife support. Uh, and, and his minister talked some politics from the pulpit and then segued into uh, his sermon. TJ talked about how much he enjoyed it. I talked about how much I liked the sermon. I don't like politics on Sunday from the pulpit. We had a discussion about it. We're gonna let Bobby uh, settle our debate on, on politics from the pulpit. We'll get into that discussion. And the, the new law that's being passed or signed in Oklahoma banning abortions plays into that conversation. Uh, Bobby referenced it. But anyway, Bobby will be here in studio. He'll help me and TJ walk through our debate about politics from the pulpit. Uh, so the end, the second half of the show is going to be amazing. I want you to stick around for that. Uh, but we're going to set a high standard with the beginning of the show because uh, Steve Kim and I are going to discuss ESPN's recent uh, spending spree on Adam Schefter and Adrian Wojnarowski and before that, Troy Buck, Troy Buck, Troy Aikman and Joe Buck. And so I'm going to start the fire there, then bring in uh, the Korean co-sell, Steve Kim, uh, to help me further break down this fire starter. I'm about to set. Uh, sit back, enjoy your Wednesday. Uh, ESPN's recent spending spree on Troy Aikman, Joe Buck, Adam Schefter, and Adrian Wojnarowski will soon be problematic. The worldwide leader in Woke will be forced to explain why it dumped $250 million in contracts on four white men in a span of one month. These types of exclamations 
explanations are necessary when businesses embrace diversity, inclusion, and equity, D-I-E, mandates established by the BLM LGBTQIA alphabet mafia. Every decision, not just hiring decisions, has a racial, gender, sexuality, and political component that must be met. If certain boxes are not checked, Jamel Hill, L. Duncan, Maria Taylor, and their alphabet mafia allies running corporate human resources departments huddle to plot their revenge. The only thing more dangerous than a scorned woman is a pack of them in partnership with biological men looking to emote feminine energy. Aikman, Buck, Schefter, and Wojnarowski now join their black heterosexual ally, Stephen A. Smith, atop the Alphabet Mafia's ESPN hit list. Jimmy Pataro, the ESPN executive who authorized their contracts, probably thinks of these men as the network's Fab Five. They're certainly paid like basketball stars. Aikman earns a reported 18 million a year, Buck earns 15 million, Stephen A. Smith, 12 million, Schefter, 9 million, and Wojnarowski, 7 million. Yeah, green with envy does not adequately describe the waiting to exhale text thread circulating among Hill, Duncan, Taylor, Malika Andrews, Kari Champion, Josina Anderson, Mani Kimes, Sarah Spain, Leah Thomas, and Bomani Jones. In that fictional thread, the Fab Five are referred to as Stephen A and the Blowfish, and the album is called Cracker Rear View. I'm gonna just think, Stephen A and the Blowfish, Cracker Rear View. For those of you that are a little young, that's Hootie and the Blowfish, Crack Rear View. Uh, but anyway, let me continue. Not all of the complaints will be unjustified. Schefter and Wojnarowski are grossly overpaid. Twitter should be paying them, not ESPN. I like and respect Schefter and his work ethic. I respect Wojnarowski's work ethic too but they can both be replaced. No one turns on the TV to see Adam Schefter or Adrian Wojnarowski. We follow them on Twitter for their information. They're handed information from NFL and NBA insiders because ESPN is still the most powerful TV platform to disseminate information about those leagues. Schefter's primary value is that he's willing to live a miserable life attached to several cell phones at all times. Fox's Jay Glazer quit that lifestyle several years ago. Few people are willing to make the lifestyle sacrifices Schefter makes. That sacrifice is worth four or five million a year. Wojnarowski is obscenely overpaid. He is embarrassingly bad on TV. He's virtually worthless on air. He's solely a Twitter feed. Years ago, when he worked at Yahoo Sports, Wojnarowski wrote influential and insightful columns about the NBA. He no longer does this. He tweets. He's either unwilling to share what he knows about the NBA culture, or he only knows NBA transactions. He's a newspaper agate. He's an agate clerk being paid like a lead newspaper columnist. Brian Windhorst, Sham Shania, and Chris Haynes could replace Wojnarowski tomorrow without impacting ESPN's business model. Wojnarowski is worth $2 million. 
I have no problem with the money ESPN paid to lure Aikman and Buck from Fox Sports. They're worth it. Their arrival dramatically impacts the perception of ESPN's NFL coverage. Under previous ESPN president John Skipper, the network created the perception that it hated football. The Monday Night Football broadcast booth was turned into a shrine for the LGBTQIA community when Skipper paired coaching legend John Gruden with Sean McDonough and Lisa Salters. The replacement booths featuring Steve Levy, Jason Witten, Booger McFarland, Brian Greasy, and Lewis Riddick barely improved the Alphabet Squad. Aikman and Buck know how to sell football. They appear to love the game. Their addition to ESPN will make the NFL more comfortable improving the Monday night football schedule. Given the broadcasting shakeup across ESPN, Fox, and NBC, you could argue Monday night might replace Sunday night as the NFL's most important destination. That alone makes Aikman and Buck worth every penny spent. As for Stephen A. Smith, of course he's overpaid. His signature show, First Take, averages 400,000 viewers. He's paid like he's Tucker Carlson, who averages close to 4 million viewers. In fairness, Carlson's show is half as long as Smith's, but Carlson is a singular host, not relying on a co-host or a rotating cast of debate partners. Smith is a barbershop gimmick supported by props. Debate is the star of Smith's gimmick, not his own talent. The same goes for his uh, Fox Sports counterpart, Skip Bayless. After the success of Tony Kornheiser, Mike Wilbon, and Pardon the Interruption, Sport TV networks let a charlatan, Jamie Horowitz, convince ESPN and Fox Sports that debate was the draw. And then they paid the marginally talented trolls like they were must-see TV. The flawed concept and saturation wound up diminishing the real talent and chemistry between Kornheiser and Wilbon. In terms of audience, the debate shows have a very limited ceiling, but that hasn't stopped ESPN and Fox Sports from overpaying for its trolls, race baiters, and shouters. Nothing has changed about television talk shows since syndicated columnist Ed Sullivan debuted Toast of the Town in 1948. It was later renamed The Ed Sullivan Show. TV talk is always about the talent, likability, and point of view of the host. It was true for Sullivan, Johnny Carson, Dave Letterman, Oprah Winfrey, Arsenio Hall, John Stewart, Bill O'Reilly, and Rachel Maddow. No one tuned in to see Carson debate Ed McMahon. Forced debate is a telltale sign of a lack of talent. So is the argument that justifies jobs on the base of diversity, inclusion, and equity. DIE will be the death of ESPN. Stephen A and the Blowhards ruin sports TV. Mm. That's my fire. Stephen A and the Blowhards, or Stephen A and the Blowfish, and the Cracker Rear View. Would you not love to be a fly on the wall in the text threads of Jamel Hill and Maria Taylor and L. Duncan and all the other angry uh, women and uh, the, the Alphabet Mafia and all these discussing all this money ESPN has now showered uh, in this past month on four white guys and in the past year on Stephen A. Smith?
if you remember, part of Maria Taylor's argument was she needed to be paid like she was Stephen A. Smith. That was part of her argument. That's why her dispute, you know, not only was she taking a dump on Rachel Nichols trying to get that money, uh, but, you know, she was justifying it that she was as valuable as Stephen A. Smith. Stephen A. Smith is more valuable, even though he's overpaid, he's more valuable than Maria Taylor. Maria Taylor's just an Instagram, a tall Instagram model who looks good and look, is, has some talent as a host. But to a sports network, they got Instagram models beating themselves up and starving themselves all over the country trying to get that job. Anybody can be taught how to read a teleprompter and look good. Does Maria Taylor have anything interesting to say? She can't even really do debate TV, which is the TV they've set up for low-level, talented people uh, in sports. Because the overwhelming majority of these guys doing debate TV, the reason they're doing debate TV is because they don't have anything original or interesting to say not on a regular, consistent basis. They're not funny. They're not profound. They're not really provocative. That's why Stephen A. shouts so much. You don't have to shout if you have something to say. You shout as a way of covering up the fact you don't have anything to say. So I fully expect over the next month, year, we're going to hear a lot of whining and complaining about this money ESPN just dropped on Wojnarowski and Schefter and all these guys. A lot of complaining. And, and ESPN deserves the complaints because they've bought in to the diversity, inclusion, and equity model. And again, that's just another thing like debate. It, it's, it's a justification for people without talent to get paid like they have talent. Oh, let's, we'll do this debate thing. And that people will tune in to see the debate, not the host, not to hear what the host say, they wanna hear the debate. Cause the host really doesn't have talent. And then they take the argument with this diversity, inclusion and equity, uh, give me my money because I look different and have a vagina or I cut off my penis and had now have a mutilated vagina. I'm different. I'm, or give me the money because I sleep with someone of the same sex. I'm different. Again, none of this, none of these people are arguing, give me the money because I'm talented and I can draw viewers. It's all about who they're sleeping with or what their skin color is or their ability to shout and pretend like they're having some provocative debate with another person with a limited amount of talent. This is why, and this is why I love Steve Kim and love bringing him on the show, because there's a lot of discussion about sports TV, what happened to ESPN, what's happened to sports television, uh, these anchors who, they become big personalities and, and major talking points but virtually no one in the media covers them honestly. No one in the media actually properly evaluates what's going on. 
the fact that most of you right now, for the first time, have ever heard, we've spent the past 15, 20 years of sports TV all centered around this debate thing. And this is the first time many of you will have ever heard that they've used debate to replace talent. There are people in sports media that don't understand what Jamie Horowitz talked them into. Embrace debate, that whole slogan. We had the people from Deadspin, Awful Announcer, all that, writing about this constantly. No one ever explaining like, it's just a gimmick because these people have no talent and these networks are foolishly paying these guys like they have talent, but they're telling you to tune in to hear the debate. They turn sports TV into a Twitter feed. It's the dumbest conversation in America. It's a Twitter feed. That's why so much of it centers around whataboutism over race. Oh my God, uh, this black quarterback is getting criticized more harshly than this white quarterback did 10 years ago. That's what passes for debate. This kind of dumbed down device, it's a Twitter feed. They're all in bed with Twitter. No one's doing actual TV in the sports world. And they're all acting, oh my God, they drew 400,000 viewers. Let's pay them $12 million for 400,000 viewers. That would get you fired most places. And they're not growing. No one's, again, they will pretend like, oh, look, after five years and dumping millions upon millions of dollars on Skip Bayless and promoting him and putting him on Super Bowl shows and all this other stuff, look, he's now drawing 225, 250,000 viewers. Money well spent. It's a joke. That kind of hype and money thrown at one personality and one show after five or six years and it's producing 250,000 viewers occasionally and you're throwing ticker tape parades and celebrating? It's a joke. You'll only hear that here because everybody else is basically in bed with these networks and just selling the narrative. Oh yeah, and that you'll hear people say, oh, Stephen A. Smith, he, he works so hard and he's worth the money and blah, blah. That's a writer in bed with the agent who represents Stephen A. Smith. No different than Adrian Wojnarowski gets all of his information from agents he's in bed with. It's all a little cesspool. And again, it's like if you have any integrity and you have any interest in truth, it's hard to exist in that environment. And, and, and these guys are now getting overpaid, and again, and this is stupid on ESPN's part, but they just overpaid Schefter and Wojnarowski out of fear. Well, look what the independent, like Joe Rogan and these other people, look what Dave Portnery and look at these people that have, Bill Simmons that have gone independent, look what they're making, so we gotta pay. Well, have you thought, those people have talent and can actually draw an audience. 
Adam Schefter, and again, I love the guy. And he's worth four or five million to ESPN. I get it. He passes on the information that's handed to him. And he's built those relationships through his job with the NFL Network and, and, and now at ESPN. I, I get it. But he can't do what Joe Rogan can do. He can't turn a microphone on and build an audience. Adrian Wojnarowski certainly can't do it. He's got to be the worst $7 million a year television star in the history of television. This man is awful on TV and everybody knows it. You don't pay somebody $7 million for tweets. Twitter could do it, but ESPN has no business doing it. It's because the people actually running ESPN don't understand TV. Uh, Steve Kim, uh, welcome uh, to the show. Oh, oh, hold on, Steve. I'm sorry. I'm a, I, gotta, I, gotta, I want you to marinate on what I said. Let me take care of a little business. That way we'll have a little more time to talk. I want to tell you about my friends over at Patriot Mobile. Uh, almost every day we hear about another major corporation that has gone woke, tormenting their employees with leftist propaganda and funding organizations who seem to hate this country, traditional values, and the Constitution. That's why I'm proud to support Patriot Mobile, America's only Christian conservative cell phone provider. They offer the same nationwide coverage as the major companies, so you get the same great services plus the peace of mind that your money is supporting free speech, life, and liberty. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget, and their exceptional customer support team is 100% U.S.-based. Go to patriotmobile.com Jason or call 972-PATRIOT. Get free activation with the offer code Jason. Veterans and first responders save even more, so make the switch today. It's time that we support companies that love America, love you, and share our values. PatriotMobile.com slash Jason or call 972-PATRIOT right now. All right, well, while you're doing that, let me go back to my guy, Steve Kim. Steve, help me fan these flames. We'll start here. I've said a mouthful, but we're going to roll the clock back and just start here. The Alphabet Mafia, Jamel Hill and her allies in the LGBTQIA plus uh, community. Uh, do you think they're going to complain? Will they have a problem with ESPN spending all this money on white guys? Let me just put it to you this way. They say a rising tide lifts all vessels, but here it could create a tsunami of grievance. I don't think there's any doubt about it. This here could be the Devontae Adams effect, where if you overpay a very good wide receiver, guess what? Every other wide receiver at or around or even below that level they understand now that their pay scale increases. So there's no doubt about it. You call them Stephen A. and the blowhards or the blowfish. Uh, I call it out of sync against the Blackstreet girls because that's exactly what's going to happen. Within due time, <laughs> what took place with Maria Taylor uh, trying to compare herself to Stephen A. is now going to happen in mass with those names that you mentioned. And then certain media Outlets are going to say, well, wait a minute, look at, they're going to, the, the buzzwords, disparity, equity, equal opportunity. All those buzzwords are going to be used to leverage ESPN to raises. That's what's going to happen. It's already in the script. Steve, I want to make sure I heard that right. Out of sync 
and the yes. Black Street Girls? Yes. <laughs> get a, let's get a graphic. Get a meme going for that one. Hey, Foley, Corey, get working on that one. <laughs> and so, of the Black Street Girls, <laughs> who benefits the most from this? Who gets the first big pay raise? Might it be uh, the Asian Cosell herself, Mina Kim, Kimes? Uh, might she be first? In, is it Mina no. or Mina? It was Mina. Mina Kimes? No, no. Wait a minute, though. She's too white adjacent. Keep that in mind. She's one of us now. It's going to be Jum L. Duncan. SAT score too high. SAT yeah. score too high. Yeah, the 40-yard dash too slow. She, she probably can't parallel park. But I, I think it's going to be Duncan. It's going to be Duncan because, look, when she took the Who's really out, white adjacent? Right. Okay, still. But, you know, the one drop rule. She's got a few more drops than Minute yeah, Maid. Yeah. So that's the one. If you really look, I, I agree, because there's got to be an algorithm of like, okay, who's really black, black? Who's kind of white, black? Who's kind of white adjacent? L. Duncan still outpaces my fourth cousin. So I, I, I think she's first in line before Mina, to be honest with you. That's just my view. It, 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 it will be hard to, it'll happen. They're all going to get raises out of this to keep quiet. Don't don't say anything publicly. But I wonder if they'll be able to contain Jamel Hill. How many tweets do you think Jamel Hill has deleted in the past two to three days? uh, But but said, nah, let's keep quiet. We're going to play this card a little later. That's an interesting question because she's no longer there at the network, right? Or is she back somehow? I'm always confused by her relationship with the four letter monolith. But look, Jamel Hill, I it just my view is almost too toxic to even put back in a major role. She could she could help produce things, she could be involved in projects. But look, her version of Sports Center with Michael Smith was terrible. It's one of the worst things I ever saw. The six, I literally gave less than six minutes, and I said, This is not gonna work, and America spoke. And that that's the thing that is interesting to me, Jason, about your original uh, thesis of your column today, is that there used to be a time when ESPN had personalities that we grew up in the '80s. Okay, whether it was Chris Berman who absolutely became the face of ESPN, and whatever he was on was important, and you watched it. Then then later on, you had Dan Patrick who went on to bigger and better things. Keith. Oberman, before he went completely cuckoo, went on to bigger and better things. Robin Roberts certainly went on to do bigger and better things. Craig Kilborn, Rich Eisen. But what I've noticed, and tell me if I'm wrong, in the last 15 years, the four-letter alphabet has been bigger than any personality because some of their announcers have left the network and they just went absolutely into the abyss of nothingness and irrelevance and had to come back to Bristol. So that's where your point is absolutely right. We can argue who is overpaid, who's not, who's overvalued, who's undervalued, but the value is the platform. And everyone in a certain degree or to a certain degree is incredibly interchangeable. You're right, because if you put someone else in that slot of Stephen A. Smith and they got the exact same push, eventually they would become Stephen A. Smith. So you're making my point about 
Schefter and Wojnarowski. I think they're both overpaid. I think Wojnarowski is really grossly overpaid, given the fact that he has no t TV talent. I, I think Wojnarowski is easily replaced. It would take a little work in replacing Schefter. Uh, Jeff Darlington can do it, but does he want to live that life? It would take a year or two before he built up the, the level of trust and sources that, that Schefter has. But I, I think they could both be replaced. And even if they couldn't be replaced, I think the damage to ESPN's brand, if they left, would be so minimal and, and look, these guys, Schefter and Wojnarowski, take their Twitter feeds and get paid somewhere else. But their profile, their importance in the sports world would drop instantaneously. Yes. You'd never hear from them again. Uh, I think both of these guys are overpaid, but I think Adrian is really grossly overpaid. Every time I see Wojnarowski on television, I say, yeah, he has a personality made for Twitter. You're absolutely right. And uh, you make a great point about Wojnarowski just becoming a very, very uh, big glorified Twitter feed or a highly paid, paid transaction page. Because basically it's about who's getting traded, who's getting dumped, um, who's going to be released, who's going to draft who. But in terms of actual context, I don't get any of it. And, and in my view, Jay, and I think me and you feel the same way because we're old school, when you are the face of a beat – whether it's boxing, basketball, the National Football League, college football, NHL, anything, you have to be able to write some long-form stories and give a context to the actual culture of the industry that you are covering. Let me give you an example. For years, my favorite NBA writer was a man by the name of Mark Heisler, who covered the Lakers and the L.A. Times. And every Sunday during the season, they used to give him a full two-page spread where he'd give news and notes, stories and anecdotes about what is going on inside the league. And even though I wasn't the biggest basketball fan, like I was compared to, let's say, college football, every time I read that piece, Jason, and I, and I spent a good 20 to 25 minutes pouring over every word, I said to myself, that was entertaining, it was informative, and you know what? I know what's going on in the NBA, and it heightened my interest. Adrian simply does not do that anymore, and I believe it's part of the culture now. ESPN is about the hits, the breaking news stories, and I'm not so sure long-form stories are really pushed anywhere. So to be fair for Adrian Wojnarowski, maybe his editors and everyone over there has made the choice, you know what, let's just go with like the breaking news across the bottom of the screen. You are no longer really a writer as you once were. Yeah, that's certainly what they have decided. Again, I rattled off Windhorse, Shams, mm -hmm. Sharania, Chris Haynes. They could replace Adrian. Couldn't let him go. He and Pataro, he and Jimmy Pataro have a long relationship, so they took care of Adrian. But that, that the $7 million man, that's a joke. <laughs> we, we've discussed this. We discussed this at the time uh, that these guys jumped over from Fox Sports, but I, I want to give you one more shot at, at this. Aikman and Buck, to me, I think were a great spin for ESPN. Football is the thing that drives, and the NFL football consistently drives rating, drives perception. ESPN completely cleaned up its perception that it hates football, and there was a time when that argument could be made, and people at the NFL certainly felt like the network 
hated football, and that's why their Monday night football schedule was so terrible. And then I thought saddling John Gruden with Sean McDonough in the booth and, and Lisa Salters as the sideline reporter, you couldn't sell football. You couldn't celebrate football uh, with two people that cared nothing about football. Sean McDonough is a baseball guy, I think hated football. Uh, he and Lisa Salters were there because of diversity, inclusion, heavy on the inclusion and equity. Uh, you know, soldiers in the alphabet mafia. And so I, I think because of all that history, because they need an improved Monday night football schedule and because of the damage it does to Fox Sports, I, I think Aikman and Buck made perfect sense to overspend to get them. In a way, it did. You know, here's the one thing that's interesting about Joe Buck. Every time he calls a national game, you go on a Twitter feed, he's always trending. He's like Duke basketball, not only just because he's white. You either hate him or love him, and he's a source of discussion. I've always found that interesting. Joe Buck, in my view, is a an elite announcer. He could do several sports, and he's the face or the, the blow-by-blow or play-by-play voice of more than one sport, which is highly unusual at a national level. He's a very talented guy. I've never really understood the over-the-top derision of him. As it relates to Troy Aikman, he was the quarterback of America's team during that dynastic run in the 90s, and he's known as one of the premier elite color commentators. Although, I'll be honest with you, uh, I've never really watched the game thinking, man, Troy Aikman really wowed me. Uh, I know you're not a big fan of Tony Romo. I actually like Tony Romo more than I do Troy Aikman, but Romo doesn't have the Super Bowl rings and he's not in the Hall of Fame. So in terms of a credibility boost, yes, because that Monday night game, you go all the way back, it has to be about stars. Let's go back to the first Monday night football game ever where I wasn't even born yet. People forget the original announcer, was Keith Jackson, who's always, to me, is going to be Mr. College Football. And it took them a couple of seasons before they hit their stride, and they ended up getting Danny Don Meredith, Howard Cosell, and I think Frank Gerford was the original play-by-play guy before he got shifted over. And they found that nirvana. And throughout the years, they always tried to do a hit-or-miss thing where O.J. Simpson, he had mixed results. Eric Dickerson as a sideline reporter. I love Eric. That that was not his forte. Uh, they even brought in Dennis Miller one time, right? And, and Tony Kornheiser. So it's that that one booth has to be about stars and personalities that mesh. Now the one I'm going to make this point about Buck and Aikman. They are sound. They are solid. But are they really entertaining, though? In your view, Jason. Yeah, let, let me tell you what I enjoy about Aikman in particular, and I, and I believe Joe Buck is just rock solid in anything he does. But what 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 Aikman is fearless, man, and and it's like this will sound condescending, but it's like if you know the game, Aikman will criticize quarterbacks. He doesn't yes. do it in an over the top way that makes it seem like wow, he really took a shot at that guy, but but. You can figure out the quarterbacks he doesn't think much of just from listening. He was never a Donovan McNabb guy. No, you're and I, right. I thought, I, I thought he was too hard on Donovan McNabb. By the end of Donovan's career, when he got away <laughs> from Andy Reid, I was like, oh, this is what Aikman was talking about. A- Aikman was basically trying to tell you 
that Andy Reid's offense and system was carrying this guy yes. and that there were things that Donovan was missing and couldn't do as a quarterback. Uh, and so, you know, at the time, I was like, I thought Aikman was too hard. By the time McNabb's career was over and by the time he got to Washington and you could see like, well, Shanahan and these guys couldn't work that magic with, with him that Andy Reid. I, I, so I think he's not afraid to be critical in a very classy, clever way. I find that enjoyable. Tony Aikman, I mean, uh, Tony Romo seems like a cheerleader to me. Uh, <laughs> you know, I like Chris Collinsworth and, uh, and Al Michaels, but that thing has been broken up. And so now to me, Aikman and Buck are the clear uh, voices of the NFL on Sundays. And uh, I think it's a great move by ESPN. Well, now, now I want to get to my, I'm sorry, I want to get to my much larger point that, that the argument I make at the end mm. that Jamie Horowitz uh, and these television networks fell into this debate as the star of, yes. of TV, not the actual host. And it's like Tony Kornheiser and Mike Wilbon had real chemistry. Uh, Tony had, from doing all that radio for years, had real broadcasting chops. Mike, uh, kind of a natural, but their friendship chemistry actually made PTI an event and a show. And then here comes Jamie Horowitz and these guys that want to be PTI knockoffs. And, and they start working with guys that don't really have talent. And so he starts selling, come watch the debate. And, and the debate was, the, and then turned around and paid mm. the debaters like they were the actual stars. And that model has gone everywhere. And that debate, 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 and everyone got obsessed with debate. And television, talk TV, has never been about debate. Never. It, it, it's because look, if debate was this little extra element, if it was, if debate was bacon, they would have had Ed McMahon and Johnny Carson debating. They would have had, they would have brought on someone to debate Oprah, Gail King to debate Oprah Winfrey during the Oprah Show. They don't do that because they're paying talented people a lot of money to host these shows and to be clever and likable and amusing and entertaining. And, and you have none of that, or virtually none of that in sports TV. You have hacks yelling and screaming about dumb stuff and people tune in for the debate. Meanwhile, we're gonna pay these trolls and race baiters and shouters like they're the actual stars. Yeah, if debate was bacon, well, move over bacon, make way for sizzling because I believe in discussion. There is nothing worse than <laughs> contrived conflict. It's phony, it's inauthentic, and it's bad. Your monologue, when I read it and I heard it, got me thinking of the show that actually began my interest or was a big impetus for me wanting to get into sports media. I was probably its most avid fan living in Montebello, California. And it was long before PTI. You had to have seen it, Jason. It was called Sports Writers on TV. And it was originally syndicated by the Sports Channel America of America. Had Ben Bentley, Bill Jouse, Bill Gleason, and the great Rick Callender, who was one of my favorite writers. And it was just four Chicago-based writers sitting at a wooden table. And they would actually smoke cigars. And it was so underproduced that it had like two, three cameras. And sometimes they would disagree. 
Other times they would just discuss or talk about topics. Other times they would just flat out argue. But it was always a civil, funny, entertaining discussion. And I remember watching that as a kid. It aired in from like 91 to about 94. And I said to myself, I'd love to do something like that. It was a huge influence on me. I remember actually writing a letter to Rick Tallender because he was the one national writer. He actually liked the dancing and the taunting of the Miami Hurricanes. He wrote me back. I still have this letter to this day. I've always thought that should be the model. What I liked about Speak for Yourself, Jason, was that you and Marcellus were the nucleus. Okay, you were the run in the DMC and you brought in some Jam Master Jays. There were times for days at a time you guys would agree on a lot of things and you'd have a civil discussion giving different points of view on things that you felt the same way about, gathering different perspectives. But other times you would vehemently disagree either with Marcellus or your panelists. Sometimes you'd all agree. And it was very authentic. And I think that's the problem is that when you force somebody into a hole that you guys have to disagree every single time, over time, I think even the panelists themselves, they don't even know what they believe in. No, they don't. And it's because there's a system built and a belief built that, hey, don't discuss this topic unless you all disagree. And yeah. I always fought against that. My standard was, let's talk about whatever is interesting. If we have mm -hmm. something interesting to say. And it's again, it's a lot like me and your conversations here. Uh, you know, 20% of the time we may disagree, but what I always know when I bring you on, when I bring Delano on, when I bring TJ on, Royce, Dave Shannon, Pastor, who, they're gonna say something interesting. They're gonna, they may take my point, agree with it, and then take it to a higher level, or did you ever think about it this way? People want to hear interesting things. People want to hear original ideas. People want to be given, in my view, new ways of thinking about things. I think it's more entertaining. I think it's more valuable to political discourse. But, but what has happened, people like Horowitz and others and executives or whatever, they allowed Twitter to convince them and that was the whole thing. Every day they just looked to see what was trending on Twitter and that would be the topic. How can we disagree on the topic and go? And that's how day after day after day, it was Tim Tebow, Tim Tebow, Tim Tebow, Tim Tebow, yeah. rather than <laughs> anything else going on in the world of sports. And it was just people taking different sides and art. And that's how, you know, again, and, and we'll, we'll finish up here, but I, I never, fully embraced the LeBron James, Michael Jordan conversation because I mm. always thought it was preposterous to put LeBron James in the same category as Michael Jordan. And uh, I'm just sorry. There was a chance LeBron could earn it. There was a potential, but he just didn't do it. And I, th I think I've been proven right. I think last night uh, this guy, a playoff elimination game, sore ankle, sore ankle and does not play. Uh, I can't uh, play off on and, and again, we, we've seen, and this is why that Michael Jordan uh, Last Dance documentary was so important. Even when Michael Jordan knew he had no real shot at winning an NBA title, that guy went balls to the wall to win playoff games and to make the playoffs. It was yeah. a part of his legacy. It was just, 
LeBron James don't care. And, and again, he set out that game because he knew Phoenix was going to beat him, whether he played or not. And he's just not that kind of ultra competitor. And that's why And he's never been. And that's been well aware for a long time. But we continued on with this LeBron James. And I, occasionally I participated in it. Uh, but but I ne- not, not with the enthusiasm, because it's just a stupid debate. LeBron James is not on Michael Jordan's level, period, in the discussion. Let me quote the words of the great Jim Mora about the Lakers. <laughs> playoffs? <laughs> Play- playoffs? You're kidding. Playoffs? Going back to Michael Jeffrey Jordan, uh, I could go 30 minutes on why he's the greatest player ever and never talk about his shooting or his offensive skills. He did so many things on the defensive end that are so underrated. But to go back to that last dance, the one thing that they missed is my minor quibble. You go back to his willingness to win and to play. His second year, he breaks his foot. I think in the third or fourth game, if I recall correctly, it's against Golden State. And the Bulls were going to tank. And Michael Jordan told Reinsdorf and Krause and Rod Thorne or whoever else, you tank when my contract runs out. I'm out of here. We are not tanking under my watch, and I'm going to play basketball. What they did, what they didn't put in to that fine documentary series, Michael Jordan started to play pickup basketball, I believe, near Chapel Hill because he wanted to play basketball. The Bulls were going to ban him and say, you can't do that. You're our property, blah, blah, blah. And Michael Jordan said, when my foot says I'm ready to play basketball, I'm picking up the Spalding, and I'm going to play some basketball. And in his next contract, they actually had a clause called the love of the game. And it basically stated that Michael Jordan wants to play basketball. The man's going to play basketball. And so throughout every offseason for the first half of his career, he would play in a lot of all-star charity games. And because he wanted to play basketball. And you know what's funny, Jay? I have a highlights of a lot of these because Magic Johnson used to have the Midsummer Nights Classic. Had that for about seven years. Every single game. He was the best player. He really was. It's amazing how much of a competitor he was. In fact, you go to the 84 Olympics, his Olympic team led by Bobby Knight went, I believe, 8-0 against a team of NBA All-Stars that had Isaiah, Kevin McHale, Magic, Bird, the best player in every single game. And the great Robert Montgomery Knight, the general, very hard to please, he said in that summer when Michael Jordan was 21, he said, Michael Jordan's the greatest player I've ever seen. And they said, what? It's not even close. I, I've never seen an athlete that could play the game like him. And what set him apart, Jay, going to your point, I've never met a guy that competed like him. Bobby Knight hated NBA basketball. He basically said, when it comes to athletes, there's three legends, Babe Ruth, Jack Nicholas, and Michael Jordan. Enough said. Mm. All right, we'll end on that note. Thank you, Steve. Great job as always. Uh, probably see you tomorrow. Uh, let me tell you about our new partner, Preborn. Throughout the whole world, the leading cause of death is abortion. In the U.S., murder has become a wholesale business since Roe v. Wade. We've killed over 63 million children, nearly 25% of pregnant mothers do not choose life. The ministry of Preborn and Blaze Media are partnering to help rescue 50,000 babies from abortion in 2022. Preborn is the direct competition to Planned Parenthood and the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the United States. When you let a woman see her baby or ultrasound and hear the heartbeat, 
she is 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. And when the mother chooses life, preborn provides maternity and baby clothes, diapers, car seats, counseling, and much more free of charge. Preborn has a passion to save unborn babies from abortion and see women come to Christ. Over the past 15 years, preborn centers have saved 188,000 babies. Will you help rescue babies' lives? To donate, dial pound 250 and say keyword baby. That's pound 250, keyword baby, or go to preborn.com slash fearless. Stick around, we're, we're gonna continue the conversation around abortion because it'll be Tennessee Harmony and Pastor Bobby and TJ Moe via Skype, and we're gonna talk about the steps Oklahoma has taken, basically to ban uh, abortion in its state. Uh, and it's gonna lead to a bigger, broader discussion about uh, the ministry and, and pastors talking politics from the pulpit. Uh, but I'm so proud to be partnered with Preborn. Uh, this is an issue um, that I feel strongly about. So guys, please support them because again, they support us and what we believe. All right, Tennessee Harmony, next. Welcome. Welcome back to uh, Fearless with Jason Whitlock. It's time for some Tennessee Harmony. Uh, Pastor Bobby Harrington's here from Renew.org. Uh, TJ Moe is Skyping in with us uh, from St. Louis. Uh, Bobby, I, I told you this story off air, but let me share with the uh, viewers. TJ and I uh, had a conversation this weekend because, uh, you know, TJ's kind of like you and Anthony and some other that that he's available to talk church seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And so on Sunday, just knowing he's in that mindset, I sent him the Mike Todd service that I had watched uh, that was about uh, basically having a purpose to your career goals and your acquisition of money and not thinking of money as a problem or thinking of money as a source for pleasure thinking of money as uh, giving purpose to your life and applying that money to a greater purpose, bringing glory to God and, you know, building the kingdom, blah, blah, blah. So I sent that to TJ and TJ then sent me uh, the service that he, had, he and his wife had watched that morning. Uh, they got a little one-year-old kid and so they watch from home online. Their uh, minister, I think his name's Ron Tucker. And TJ, when he sent it to me, he texted me like, man, I love this guy and what he does. He, uh, he, he'll talk politics and what's going on in the culture. And then he'll just seamlessly segue into his sermon and scripture and blah, blah, blah. TJ sent it to me. I enjoyed the service. I did not like the politics at the beginning of the service. And I told TJ that, that I have a philosophy. And so I, I wanna start by playing you a clip from TJ's pastor. There's two different ministers talking here. I know the main minister, Ron Tucker, there's a younger guy that speaks before him, but this was at the beginning of their church service on Sunday. Let's play that clip. 
Tuesday. Tuesday's a big day. It's election day here for St. Louis County, St. Charles County. Of course, we've been pushing about voting for school boards. Guys, this is where we have the opportunity to have an impact in such a local way and an easy way. So I want to encourage you, do not miss going to the voting booth on Tuesday and voting. We are believing the Lord to put school board members in place that will be fearless in educating our children with no fear from a biblical worldview and a conservative principled idea of who God is and who God has made us to be before him. Let's show up and vote on Tuesday. Not only are we being gaslighted by the media, now we're discovering the depth of our government's involvement in deception. Uh, first, I just I wanna mention this. This week, Missouri and 20 other states have filed a lawsuit to end the country's mask mandate on public transportation. Hallelujah. If you travel, if you travel, you know what a big deal that is, sitting with a mask on for three hours. So that, that's, that's huge. Uh, we need to pray they win, all right? And this week, the FDA approved another booster shot. That's shot number four. And they said, we'll probably need another one in four to five months. Department, Department of Defense literally altering data to hide the number of service members who have been injured by these mandated shots. These aren't nursing home residents. These are, this is our military who are, you know, suddenly suffering a 279% spike in miscarriages, a 487% spike in breast cancer, a 2,181% spike in hypertension, a 680% spike in multiple sclerosis, and a 369% spike in testicular cancer. And they buried it. All right, so I'm gonna let TJ come in and explain why he, because again, he eventually segued into a sermon loaded with scriptural references and just a typical standard Sunday church service. TJ, uh, come in, tell us why you like this approach, uh, and then I'm gonna explain why I don't like it. <laughs> so, I have been searching for a pastor that I feel like is an actual fearless leader. And I found one in Ron Tucker. I have had several pastors throughout my lifetime who have shied away from what I think are important societal issues that pastors, people who many people will sit in the pews and listen to and take their direction. They're shying away from it. And I think it's for two reasons. Uh, Jason, we talked a lot about this on Sunday. The first reason is I think we have a total misapplication of what is deemed separation of church and state. That is found nowhere in the Constitution. Actually, Charlie Kirk, if you want to know where my pastor stands, he brought Charlie Kirk in Sunday night, not a church service, but brought him in on Sunday night to actually talk. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Charlie Kirk. He's a strong Christian guy. He has, uh, he has his own... Um, company and such. And so he came in and, and discussed a lot of this. One of the things he said was, listen, the separation of church and state, the doctrine itself comes from a letter from Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptist Church. It's nowhere in the Constitution, nowhere in the Federalist Papers, nowhere in the Declaration of Independence. And it has been largely misapplied. The idea was 
the government has no place in establishing or prohibiting free exercise of religion. It was never intended to keep the church out of politics or shaping culture. So that's, that is a big problem. I think it's a, a misapplication, which is why I like that he's doing this. The second thing is, is I feel like many of the pastors today are cowards and we are losing the culture war because they're afraid to stand up and tell it like fearless men. And, you know, I, I was thinking a lot about this. It, it is perhaps the most insulting thing in the world is for you to shy away from the values that were given to you by the creator of the universe. And that's what many pastors are doing. And that drives me insane. They say, well, yes, we're Christians. And I know you think we're sexist and homophobic and bigots and racist. I know you think that, but just understand we're following our religion and it drives me absolutely insane. You need to stand up there like a man and address these things. And so I, look, I've, I've spent my life in church and maybe this is, if, if you, it was your first Sunday, you wouldn't like what you heard from Ron Tucker. If it was your first year in church, maybe you wouldn't like it. I am, I've heard most all of these scriptures. I've read the whole Bible through myself. I am to a place where I'm looking for a man who will stand up there and help lead me through life. That's what I want. And so Ron Tucker says, here are the things happening in society today. Here's what the Bible says about them in no uncertain terms. I mean, he will stand up there and say, guys, there's no question about where the Bible stands on CRT. Slave nor free, Greek nor Jew. Uh, it, it, we're in a place where Jesus tells, I think it was Paul. Am I right there? Uh, in Galatians, there's nor Jew nor Greek, uh, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So you got to tell me where CRT fits in that. We know where we stand on the abortion issues. I mean, look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. An orphan definitionally is someone whose mother is trying to kill them. So we know where we stand. I can't figure out why the pastors are not out front on this. And I finally found one and I found a few across the country, but that's what it's taken. I've gone to 15 churches in St. Louis and I hate most of them because they're governed by cowards. Mm. So uh, there's TJ. There's no ambiguity about yeah, what TJ thinks. No, there is none. Uh, that's what TJ thinks. And, and I, again, I watched the entire service. I want to be clear. TJ's church predominantly white, but there is diversity based on what I could see, uh, b band, choir, and my conversation with TJ. My history is with predominantly black churches uh, throughout my life. And so that's one of the reasons I'm so against politics in the church, because I think it tends to overshadow Jesus. And I've spoken at the church I grew up in and financially supported for many years. Uh, that like, hey, we're taught the word Trump and Obama comes out of people's mouths more than Jesus. That's a problem. If 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 throughout the week, if you're keeping a list of how many times you say Trump or Obama and how many times you say Jesus and these two guys are you're saying them 200 times and you're saying Jesus three times and two of two and a half of those times are on at Sunday at church, uh, there's a problem. Things are out of balance. And then so <clears throat> I showed TJ this clip, and this is why I'm concerned. I see this clip from libs of TikTok, black minister, uh, I forget what city this is in, but 
He's leading the church in the kind of idolatry that sickens me. Watch this clip. Say her name. Katanji Brown Jackson. Say her name. Katanji Brown Jackson. Say her name. I don't hear nobody. She belongs to us. That's idolatry. That's the definition of idolatry. It's a Sunday, it's church, and we're chanting Katanji. I don't know where Katanji Brown Jack, does she believe in Jesus? Is Jesus her Lord and personal savior? What are her religious philosophies? Where does she stand on the issues that are important to me from a biblical standpoint, but we're chanting her name at church. And Barack Obama is a religious figure at many black churches. I, I just, that's why I'm, a, and my argument to TJ over the weekend, Bob, was that you got Monday through Saturday, where I think this is my problem with churches. Churches are a Sunday thing. I think they should be a seven day a week, 24 seven day a week thing. And on Saturday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you want to hold meetings and talk about, now let's apply our biblical worldview to how we see politics and what we should do in our communities. I'm all for it. On Sunday from the pulpit, I only want to hear about Jesus, his philosophy, philosophies of his disciples. I want to hear the gospel. I need that escape. And I was explaining to TJ that I think there are a lot of people, because TJ admitted to me, that not everybody at the church, his church likes this. And I said, TJ, there are some people that spend so much time at work in some kind of political tension, hostile work environment. They, they come home, turn on the TV and watch cable news all during the week. And they actually look forward to Sunday. And it's like, oh, now I just get to go put Jesus on a pedestal and remind myself that he is king and there are no idols except him. And I think that's still important. <clears throat> yeah, so uh, this will be a good conversation. Uh, I think I'm somewhere between you and uh, TJ. So um, let me uh, start off by kind of establishing a baseline. Uh, so I, I just want to say that making Sunday a special thing for the church that's different than Tuesday or Wednesday, you're not going to find anything like that in the Bible, okay? You're going to find that who we are and what we teach, we teach Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And so I think delineating between a Sunday hmm. and uh, throughout the week is a false dichotomy. And the other thing about church, Jason, is church is, is not a service you go to. It's a community that you're a part of if we're following the Bible, so, so it's like the, the question isn't what service you go to, it's a, what community are you involved in? Uh, so uh, I just want to uh, delineate that as we begin. That's, th this is why we're having that discussion. That, you've made some great points. Okay. Now, um, I just want you to know that right now in our culture, probably in ways that have not happened in a long time, probably since the Civil War, politics uh, is spiritualized 
politics is religion. People who are Democrats, they're super religious about it. It's like the purpose for which they live. Uh, and on the right, people are doing the same thing, that it's, they're, they're, they're making the Republican Party equivalent to the way of Jesus. And my view, and I think, well, let me just say what I know is biblical. I have one king, and his name is Jesus the Messiah. So he's my king, and I want to be loyal to him over Republican politics and beliefs, over Democrat politics and beliefs, because I have one king, and I follow him. He's Lord of Lords and King of Kings, to quote a, a, a Bible passage. That means that I'm always going to be very careful about affiliating too much with the Republican side, because I don't think Jesus agrees with everything about the Republican side. I think that one of the really big problems in our country right now is that so many younger people think that if you're a Christian, you, you just turn a blind eye to everything Donald Trump does and says. And he is not a representative of Jesus in a lot of the things that he does. And too many Christians are afraid to call that out because he's our advocate and has been an advocate on things like abortion. Well, the same way with the Democrat part, I know good Christian people who vote Democrat because they believe that global warming is a reality and that human beings are causing it. And it's like a crisis. And so they're, they're saying, uh, is my big concern global warming or is my big concern abortion? And they're going to both make good points. But if you uh, follow hook, line and sinker, a Republican point of view, I'm just saying you are not going to represent Jesus uh, as he truly is. And on the same time, on the Democratic side, the same thing's going to happen. Now, let me just say this, because in the last election, 80% of evangelicals voted for Trump. Okay? Now, why are they doing that? Uh, it's because the ad that you had as we started the segment. Because 61 million babies have been killed in their mother's womb since Roe v. Wade. And like, of all the issues you can look at in the country, how could you say that there's something more important than that? And so, so many evangelicals, myself included, have voted with that as a dominant thing that we think King Jesus wants us to advocate for. And then my last point is this. I think that as citizens of a democracy who follow King Jesus, that we have an obligation to vote the best way we think King Jesus would want us to vote. And I think that we have an obligation to do that, to be a part of this process in the country in which we live, but that Jesus should go into the voting booth with us. TJ, I'm gonna let you respond first, but I definitely got some follow-ups. TJ, anything you wanna respond to there? No, I love his point about it. It is not just being a Sunday deal and the church is a community that largely, Jason, that's what you and I were talking about, particularly the second point that it is that is supposed to be your community and the people that you can trust with your kids can trust with your life. I love that. I, I, I think I want to emphasize the reason I think it's so important for pastors to jump in to culture uh, in particular, because I, I don't think I do a very good job explaining it. And I do not want to be the guy, uh, as Bobby said, who, who stands up here and acts like he's just trying to defend the Republican Party, because as uh, I voted for Donald Trump twice, 
I will be voting for Ron DeSantis in the primary uh, in this upcoming election, I hope, because I would prefer a better man. But the, the idea is we, ha- we know the two greatest commandments, Matthew 22, love God and love people. And the reason pastors have to be jumping into the culture, in my view, is because if we're taught things like CRT, you're not loving people. You're not telling them the truth. You're not actually giving them the biblical view. And so what when we allow these things to infiltrate, what, what's, hap- what's under attack here, in, again, in my view, is the kids. Disney Plus going after the kids, CRT now going into elementary schools, uh, the transgender issues. with like It's happening to the kids. And what happens is we are tasked in Matthew 28 with making disciples of many. We can't do that if they get to our kids first, because by the time they get to us and they're up and can actually make these decisions, they're gone. They've been indoctrinated. They already think we're bigots. They already think that the Christian values are not the proper values for their lives. And that, well, that's dated. You know, it's um, the the Pew Research Center uh, conducted a a survey in 2019. 78% of people believe the church is losing influence in America today. And so that is nearly at an all-time high. I think it was similar in in the uh, 1960s. But the, the problem, if we allow it to go this far, is we're going to lose the kids before we can ever get a hold of them. How can I go make disciples of many if they've already been taught to hate my beliefs before I ever show up? So I think it needs to come from the people that study this all day. It's hard for a construction worker to get home from work, then come study social issues, and then go out and try to make a difference. Part of, I, I need my pastor to be a shepherd, and on Sunday when I yeah. see him— I need him to say, here are the big issues. And this is what my pastor does. I love Ron Tucker for this reason. Guys, I know you don't have time to look at all this stuff. Here's what's happening. Yeah, so I agree that we have to be addressing these things. Uh, We have to do it in the church. We have to address the issues. So here's the thing. When King Jesus is the one that we are following, uh, he's going to be teaching us through Scripture on all of these issues. We have to address the issues. But there's a difference between addressing the issues and advocates for a political party. So let me just, um, I hate to do this, but I'm trying to bring my authentic self to the conversation. And I would say that your preacher, when he got into all the stats on COVID and uh, taking the line politically on COVID, uh, I'm just going to be real uncomfortable with that because we preachers are not Uh, scientists and medical experts. And when we start trying to go to bat on uh, what is essentially a political view uh, with science that we're not experts on, we've left the territory of what scripture says. Because I don't think scripture tells us right now uh, about who's right or wrong about the whole COVID debate. Now there's principles, but you got to be very careful that what you're addressing are biblical, spiritual, moral things and not just Uh, the ideas that people are upset about because of the policy decisions of either political party. I like that. So, Bob, you talked about politics being a religion, and that's what I see and think. And, and, And so when people say, take Jesus into the booth with you, when you say that, Yes. I have friends that will say, oh, when I go into this booth, all I can think about is how abusive Trump talks to people. Yeah. And uh, I th- three marriages maybe he's had. Yeah, uh, I think that's just, right. Th- just, 
he, he never, in my view, authentically talks about Jesus yeah. in a biblical worldview. Yeah. And so I have friends, this is like when they carry Jesus into the booth, that's why they can't get on board with Trump. Yeah. They don't care about the policies or they, his bad behavior trumps whatever policies. Yeah. And, and so that's kind of why I, 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 let's leave politics out of it or, because again, I think you should only care about the policies. Because I, I basically think anybody involved in politics probably some way have been corrupted because that's what politics does. It's like, if you see me inside of a strip club, I've been corrupted in some way. Yeah. I'm not there uh, preaching the gospel. Yeah. I've been corrupted in some, and so you enter into politics, there's so much money and influence and they all sell out. And, you know, maybe Ron DeSantis, but all I want you to focus on the policies. Yeah, so, so I just, uh, I think you're making really good points. I cannot tell you the number of young adults that I know, Gen Z and uh, the younger millennials, who believe that they cannot uh, go to church because churches just totally embrace Trump and that uh, Trump and, and QAnon and they, they see trying to address these things now when we're talking about the biblical issues, they automatically think, oh, you're being political. You're being political like everybody else is political. You're just trying to get me through your church to be a Republican. And it's a huge turnoff uh, from following the ways of Jesus. I, I actually feel like I can hardly state how much of a turnoff it is for Gen Z and the younger millennials that if they feel like you are not super careful to delineate that it's about Jesus, not about politics, and even when you do that, they still think it's about politics. That's why I'm kind of, you know, it's a no-go zone for me. I want to ask you this other thing about from a biblical... Just wait. So it's not a... Here's where I'm agreeing with TJ, and I want to say this wrong. We have to address... Uh, in the church community, we have to address cultural issues. And what TJ was saying about the kids right now, I think it's far worse than the average pastor, church leader realize what's happening with kids today. So we've got to address that stuff. We just got to be careful that we're not, that we are not calling people to allegiance to a political party or a political person. And that's why I would say, they said, it, TJ mentioned it, but they also said, from the, hey, Charlie Kirk's going to be here tonight. We want you to come. Charlie Kirk, I like him. He's a political figure, though. He's, he's super political. Yes. And so again, I could just see that turning off a lot of people and, and just, but again, I, I don't want to, I, I, anyway, we're just having a discussion. Here, here's, the <laughs> other, here's the other aspect that I've wanted to hear from a minister for a long time. The global warming thing. I yeah. know that for a lot of people on the left, that's their issue. Yeah. And, and part of my philosophy on global warming, but I, I would love to get a more biblically sound view on this, is I, the left has, in my view, concocted this out of a belief that man is more powerful than God. Yeah. And I have said to people, I was like, so we're so powerful, we're going to destroy God's creation. Yeah. We're really that powerful. We're that genius. 
and but again, I'm not a biblical scholar, so maybe there's a history of. Well, well here's here's the problem with the whole global warming question, is that uh, first off, it's been politicized, okay, and so it's like we can't hear, we can't hear it because it's all politicized because they're making it like the primary thing right now on the left, global warming. When you really look at everything that's going on, if you're uh, a, a progressive, it's the thing that they're pushing. And they, they shut down conversation and they shut down debate on it, uh, which is really regrettable. The second thing is that it actually is very hard science to wrap your brain around because there are so many different elements to it. And so for most church leaders, just wrapping their brains around the science to understand is really difficult. And then uh, you go to the place, well, what does the Bible say about that? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Man yeah. destroy this planet. Well, there, there are the some passages that, that show us that human beings can do things that really you know, affect the world. So the question is, did God set up the world where he would actually allow human beings to cause these problems. Now I go then, I'm looking at, is it possible? It's theoretically possible, Jason, okay? The, the, the second problem that I have with it that I've actually never talked very much to people about is when I look at the book of Revelation, my best understanding of the book of Revelation, it, it has a lot of imagery that sounds like global warming to me in terms of like some of the, the things that are, that are going to happen. Is God allowing it to happen? Because human beings have gotten to the point where we're literally in our greed and all these things that we're affecting it. That's possible. Then the, where I go to is I say, well, that's possible. The science is complicated. So who are scientists who are not captured by all of the ideology of the left? Who can like actually answer this to me. And there's an organization called reasons.org. They have some really good scientists. One is a guy named Fuzz Rana. Uh, Hugh Ross is another. And they, they delayed for a long time in addressing this. And I think they've come out with the most sensible stuff on it. And here's where they conclude. They conclude that there is some human factor. We got to be careful not to overstate it. And we want to be wise because there is some human factor in it. And that's where they, they uh, uh, complete the conversation. And that's where I'm at personally on it. Okay, so there was a movie that came out on Netflix that was up for the Academy Award this year. Uh, Leonard DiCaprio was in it. And yeah, it was a- Yeah, Don't Look Up, don't I look saw up. the movie. Okay, yeah, Don't Look Up. Yeah, I Worst saw it Worst movie well. ever made. Yeah, and I, I I didn't like Don't Look Up. I don't like it at I didn't like it at all. But, it's totally leftist stuff. Yeah, but here was my thought on the, what I didn't like about Don't Look Up as I watched it. It was like if you're have if you're in possession of this truth that we're on a collision course to destroy the planet in ten or fifteen years, if you possess that truth. And you're Paul Revere out trying to alert the people if we don't. You're so protective of other truths and disassociate yourself from so many other lies because I'm carrying the most important message the world has to hear. I can't have anybody doubt me on any of this. So I must distance myself 
from any other lies. Yeah. I need to be hurt. Yeah. And what I find is the people that are running around being Paul Revere on climate control are the same people that are telling me, well, men have periods too, and they're just birthing people. And I, I think associated just, with so many other yes, lies yes. that I'm like, how can I take you seriously yes, I agree. on this? Because trust me, if I, it's almost like with a woman that you're pursuing and you want her to be your wife. You don't want her to be your girlfriend. You want her to be your wife and raise your kids. And so there are lengths of transparency and honesty that you'll go through to get to win her trust and to keep her trust. Yes. And, and, and they're treating climate change like it's their side girlfriend. I totally agree. No- By the way, this is one of the reasons why on the political thing I'm so careful because you've got to be so careful what you advocate for that when you're a, a, a pastor or minister, because your, your credibility is your most important asset. And if you get compromised, like so many churches did with Trump, or like you're pointing out in the black church, so many uh, ministers are compromised by, by supporting the, the left, your integrity then is called into question. And so we've got to be so careful that we don't overstate things, that we uphold Jesus and what's really true and right. I totally agree with you. And so that's why I'm very, like, very comfortable. People can call, because I am a bit of an a-hole or a hard person to, but no one ever calls me a liar. It just doesn't, they'll call me fat, they can call me a bunch of, no one calls me a liar because I want to be taken seriously. And I see people running around on this climate and it's like, well, on all these other things, you don't seem to care about the truth. Yeah, uh, there's a book in the Bible, uh, 1 Timothy, and Paul writes to Timothy and uh, he says this to him. He said about being a church leader, he says, watch your life and your doctrine closely persevere in them so that you may save yourself and those that you influence. And so the idea of integrity in how you live and what you advocate for is really important. And I I agree with you. At the end of the day, when you've lost your integrity, it is really hard to be an advocate that people would follow the Jesus you point to, or in your case, when you've lost your integrity, when it comes to advocating for uh, climate change, many people are going to just tune you up, which is what's happening to most of us who are not progressives right now. TJ, I'll give you the final thought. No, I think that that is super helpful. Um, the, the biggest thing for me, and, and I hope that this is something that uh, we can contribute to building, is pastors across the country need to be leading and telling the truth. And both of you guys just said that, but if they can lead and tell the truth, men will come. I think men are looking for alpha males. There was a, um, there was a survey done 2001. It's been a little time now where, uh, there it is the U S uh, congregational life survey. Uh, only 39% of the church is comprised of males. It's 61% female. And a, in my view, and at least what I'm looking at, I can only speak for me, it's because pastors aren't standing up and being fearless men that'll lead. And it's hard for men to follow other men that look weak. And- 
and cowardly. And so for me, the political issues and the and the cultural stuff that's going on, perhaps Sunday morning and talking about COVID figures are not the right time for it. But what has attracted me to Ron Tucker and the pastors around the country who are willing to enter the culture war is their fearlessness. They are alpha males, completely unafraid because they know they have the truth and they're willing to share it. Yeah, I agree with uh, I agree with that. So are you, is that another way of saying you disagree with me? Is that what you're saying, Bob? You disagree with me? Yeah, I, I disagree be back with on you on <laughs> several of the things you said. But no, no, I, I, I just want to say yes to what uh, TJ is saying. The, the difficulty for so many churches is that uh, we have trained people in our culture to think as consumers. And so they go to churches as consumers. What am I going to get out of this? Rather than going to churches to say, hey, help me to see the way of God and be bold and courageous and lead me, uh, especially in times of chaos. You know what, now TJ's taking me to an additional thought of, cause I, and you, you may find this hard to believe, Bob, you'll, you'll, you'll believe it, TJ might not believe it, but I used to be TJ's age. And <laughs> I used to, when I started thinking of reasons why I went to the Million Man March is, is because Farrakhan was talking about impacting the culture around black men and black communities. Yeah. And I'm just, I couldn't get that masculine leadership energy from anywhere else. Yeah. So I took it from him. And I went to the Million Man March and I'll never apologize for going because I know why I went. The call for men to be responsible for themselves, their communities, their families. It just rings so powerfully to me. There was no place on the planet yeah. I wanted to be. You and I have talked about this, how yeah. there's such an urgent need right now to describe what a godly man is and what a courageous, fearless man is and to help more young men see that and be that. So, all right. Thank you, TJ. Uh, good job. Good conversation. Thank you, Bob. Uh, I think I hear tomorrow or we will be here tomorrow and uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Freedom came like a fighter, striking like a ladder, making all this moves for freedom. I want freedom. No negotiation, my system, no relation. We all just wanna have freedom. Sitting on the corner, never been alone. I'm breaking my back for freedom. Bless, we are living, get back. We are receiving all the seed when we all wanna be free. We want freedom. I just want, I wanna be, I just want, I wanna be, I just want, I wanna be, I just want.